Hey everyone, what's up? My name is River and you are listening to SCU Buzz Podcast. Most of you are probably quite familiar with the idea of the life of an artist. When someone identifies as an artist, we may picture them working in a huge New York-style loft studio, painting away at gigantic abstract artworks and partying after dark with Andy Warhol. Or some of us may envisage the stereotypical outcast, struggling to earn a living or find recognition. Some of us, however, are less likely to imagine an artist living directly inside of the intersection between art and science. I'm here this morning with the chair of SCU's Creative Arts Program and Associate Professor Grayson Cook. Grayson is an artist living and working within the crossover of art and science. He has spent his career collaborating with international science institutions and has won multiple international art awards. Grayson, thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you? Thanks, River. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, go- I'm doing well and I'm glad to be here. Fantastic. So who are you? What do you do? How did you get to where you are today? Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, I, I love your introduction, but I can't help grinning and finding it so ironic because, you know, yeah, you, you've kind of pinpointed these, in, in a way, these two poles of an artist, the, the, the kind of hedonistic, um, social, maybe rather narcissistic, out there in the world experimenter person who kind of really trades on their interior life and, and then the way in which they, they live their interior life. I don't think I do that in the slightest. <laughs> I'm just a boring dude who, who, who binges TV in the evening, but also happens to do a whole lot of work at the intersection of art and science. And in a way, I think that that focus of my work as artistic research, I think that's probably my excuse for like not really having a, you know, the, the crazy life of an artist or the artist in people's imaginations or having a studio. You know, I, I don't have a studio. I, I don't paint. I can't draw a horse. I'm a person who uses software um, pretty well. You know, that that's probably who I am as an artist. I, I, I'm a user of software and I'm an a lover of aesthetics. I, I'm a lover of beauty and form and texture and color and tone and all the stuff that I kind of learned from music that I now translate into being a media artist. So that's a roundabout way of giving you a sense of who I am. Um, I come from a musical family and I don't know, I, I think when I was seven, my, my parents said, what instrument do you want to play, Grace? And I was like, I want to play drums. And they were like, okay, um, what instrument do you want to play, Grayson? I.e., you're not becoming a drummer. So, so I said the trumpet, and, and I, I became a trumpet player at the age of seven and, and, you know, started learning, and I played in brass bands and symphony orchestras. I did play, take up drums, and I played drums and percussion and lots of kind of bands internationally and whatever. But I think music is my first aesthetic language. I reckon these days what I do is make music in between image and sound and across knowledge domains that blow me away. The other thing I get to do is is explore and play with natural phenomena that just do my head in. Clouds, rivers, the, the things we do to the planet, geomorphology, hydrology, this stuff fascinates me. So I get to make art about it. That's pretty incredible. And that, that what you just said there about growing up as a musician as well, I'll touch back on that later because I noticed in your media films that you create, it's there's no dialogue. It, it's, it's all compositional sound, which I found really fascinating. 
And I had a question in there for you later about that. So we'll touch back onto that. Um, sure, sure. So you describe your artworks as sitting between the intersection of art and science. Can you tell me about the work that you create and what it looks like, I guess, a little bit more in depth? Yeah, sure. These days, I guess most of the image sound works I do, the moving image stuff, is using satellite data. And it's, a, an, a, I guess, an interest that's become an obsession, you know. You, you, it, and it was a few years ago that I, I was doing a work in the Narracourt Caves in South Australia. And I'd, 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 I'd visited them as a, um, as a tourist and you get the 45-minute tour through and like, that's not enough. So I kind of hatched a research plan to be able to go back and spend a few days underground doing, you know, motion control footage of the cave system. And, and the, the, the park were really good at facilitating that, that kind of research interest. So I did all this filming in the Narracourt Caves and wanted to develop it into a project reflecting on the relationship between geologic time, enormous, absolutely extra-human or non-human history of the planet that dwarfs us by many orders of magnitude. And I wanted to set that against a sense of anthropogenic time or the way in which we experience time within a human time frame and, and our effect on time on the planet you know in a way we we speed things up but we also project ourselves into the future the concept of the anthropocene suggests that human beings are now a geological force and that in the future we will be able to track or you know the 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 beings that inherit the world after us will be able to track what modern human beings did to the planet through you know geomorphology and geological structures and, and, and we have that effect thousands of years into the future because of the kinds of chemicals we've released into the environment. So I wanted to, to sit geological time against that more technologized time of the human. And so I came upon this incredible archive of, online of um, Antarctic ice shelf images, satellite images, Antarctic ice shelves coming and going. And they were beautiful and they were black and white and you'd just see these enormous ice structures, these ice shelves at the edge of Antarctica kind of dissipating and reforming. Clouds would come across and then they'd, they'd, all, all, all the ice flows would smash and break up and come back again. It just endlessly happens. And that just seemed like a, an interesting way of getting at a kind of a hyperspeed figure that somehow encapsulates something about what we do to the planet. Ice shelves have always come and gone, but they're melting at greater rates as a function of the warming of the oceans, which is anthropogenic because of the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So they seem like a really nice but slightly abstract figure to get at, at, at the kind of technologized world of, of the human without it just being lots of machines and cities and stuff. So I grabbed all these images and time-lapsed them, and they were amazing. And But, you know, once you've done that, you're like, Whoa, more, more, what can I do next? I want to, I want to time-lapse the planet. I want to time-lapse Australia. But I didn't know how to do it. Like I, I couldn't couldn't find an easy online mechanism to access that kind of data. You know, if I want to time lapse a, a, a desert scene in the desert or something, I knew it would be feasible because we have now over forty years of open source um, satellite data from NASA, and we have the Landsat series of satellites. So I knew it was out there, but I didn't know how to access and process it. And then I came upon Geoscience Australia, who had this thing called the 
I don't know, now it's called Digital Earth Australia. It was called the Australian Geoscience Data Cube. And they had this picture of layers of um, images of a desert scene, a salt lake perhaps, stacked on top of each other. And I realized these are the people with the database that will allow me to do this, to time-lapse Australia. And, and that, that was really what started this whole process, that I contacted Geoscience Australia. And after knocking on the door a few times and, you know, getting like, huh, huh? or nothing, or, or da, 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 being rerouted somewhere. Eventually, I got to speak to a real human, and I flew to Canberra and had a pitch meeting where I said, this is what I want to do. I want to work with your images. And by this point, I was I was working with the music of the next, and also my friend Emma Walker, working on um, a project that was to become open air. And so I had a good pitch for them, and they could see concretely what would happen if they you know worked with me. So they did. They trained me up on how to access, process satellite data, how to work with multispectral imaging, which includes both near infrared and shortwave infrared, as well as visible light. So understanding the different bands of the electromagnetic spectrum and how you can combine them in different ways to produce different effects. And then how you can access them over time, the kind of periodicity that satellites image the Earth. That was, it was, I don't know, five, six years ago that everything changed in a way in my practice and, and satellite data, creative uses of satellite imaging became a central thrust of my work. Speaking of all of this, you recently had your short film titled The Patterns of the Past, The Promise of Tomorrow, displayed at the 2022 United Nations COP27 Climate Change Conference, that's a mouthful for sure, yep. um, in Egypt. What inspired the creation of this film and what was your process of putting that particular film together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. So that work's really the culmination of the work I've been doing with Geoscience Australia since um, we started working together. And it was the first time actually where they had commissioned something um, from me. Mostly I've been knocking on their door saying, oh, could you help me with this thing? You know, I'm, I'm doing such and such. It's an exhibition. It'll be good for you. Give us a hand. And, and they would, they've always very gratefully um, and gracefully facilitated my interests. This was the first time they approached me and said, look, we have a need. We, we appreciate the work you do. We, we see that it translates our work for new audiences and appeals to funding bodies and kind of visualizes the, the back end of science in a creative way. So and, and, and they wanted to show it at COP27. They were going to have a display. They want to highlight the work they've been doing, which is, is you know, incredible. The Digital Earth Australia platform or database, which is, you know, 40 plus years of Australian satellite data. Over the last few years, they've been expanding that into the Digital Earth Africa program. So doing the same thing for the African continent and working with governments and NGOs across Africa to use satellite data for managing water, water, water quality, the presence of water. Africa is a very large, complex continent beset by you know enormous environmental, meteorological, atmospheric kind of issues, challenges, and phenomena. So using satellite data to track water and vegetation health there is really significant and affects the lives of millions and millions of people. So that, yeah, the Australian government developed Digital Earth Africa with a bunch of partners, and that was what they wanted me to work with, really. They wanted to get me to do a bit of a comparison between the two continents, you know, where both continents with really large arid areas, because... Um, here in the Southern Hemisphere and Africa, 
well, they, 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 they cross the hemisphere as we sit at the, the 30 degree subtropical latitudes, which is the point where hot air from the, from the equator kind of comes down and hits the country. And that's what forms the world's deserts. If you look at the world's deserts, they all sit on that 30 degree parallel, kind of north and south of the equator. And so Australia and Africa face similar kind of atmospheric challenges and phenomena. They make deserts. So anyway, I've kind of lost my train of thought a little bit there. But anyway, they, they wanted me to do a comparison between um, the continents and use their platforms to do it. And they gave me new tools over the years. The, the, the ways in which you access and process this data have changed. So yeah, they assigned me a consultant to get me up to speed with where things were at now. And we developed a few applications or what are called notebooks to process the data in a way that would be useful for me because I want to get high-resolution, high-quality images over time. And so you know, anyway, we did that, and then I just floated over Africa. And, and I had some consultants who said, yeah, we, we look at mangroves in, in, the, in the Niger Delta. So I looked at that. You know, they, they also pointed out ephemeral lake systems like, um, and, and, and enormous kind of river systems like the Okavango in Botswana, which is a little bit like the Channel Country here in, in Australia, in Queensland. You know, these huge inland systems that, that channel water across vast distances and are also central for agriculture and the lives of millions of people. So, yeah, I, I just followed the, their interests in, in areas of the, country, of, the, of the continent that they were tracking, and then I just kind of went, went exploring, went looking for phenomena that look amazing when you time-lapse them. And yeah, you know, that, that, that's how I developed the work, really. I, I, I had a brief. It had to be short, you know, eight, nine minutes. This was not going to be a magnum opus. But I, I, beyond that, I had free reign in exploring these, these places that I wanted to show. And so I did that in both um, Africa and Australia. Wow. That's a, a huge project to undertake. And I imagine fascinating to, to compare both Africa and Australia. Yeah. Um, I also did not know about the 30 degree point that created deserts as well. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I had to, I didn't know this either. It's like, why is Australia dry? Well, because it is, because it is, you know, like, <laughs> well, I, I asked myself that simple question and there you go, there's the answer. But in, in, in many ways that had come about through my interest in clouds already anyway, because in, in another project, Path 99, I'd used the, the Himawari satellite, which is the satellite that Bureau of Meteorology used for our weather. It's a Japanese satellite and it's at the geostationary orbit. So it's out 35,000 kilometers from the earth and it can see a full hemisphere. Um, you know, it sees the full kind of disk of the Earth in, in, in our, um, our region of the world. And it's also multispectral. You can have visual imagery, but it's also got near-infrared and a whole lot of thermal infrared bands. So you can track the presence of something like water vapor. And so I'd, I'd done that in Path 99. I time-lapsed um, a month um, using just water vapor imagery, thermal infrared water vapor. And you can see what are called the Hadley cells. And that is that enormous upwelling of almost constant thunderstorms right around the equator, around, on the equator, right around the Earth. And that's this enormous upwelling of hot air that, that rises into the atmosphere and then um, curls over north and south. And that's where, that's where you, get the, you get these kind of big overturning circulations spreading north and south from the equator, which are what yeah, form that hot air coming down and creating deserts. Um, and so I, I guess I'd 
as I was discovering these things, I realized, oh, I'm actually actually accessing the data that literally shows shows these phenomena, um, which was was just lovely. Wow! Wow! What a fantastic way to learn, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this question goes back to your, I guess, history with music. So the film, The Patterns of the Past, Promise of Tomorrow, it's made without any dialogical sound and instead is accompanied by compositional music. Would you be able to tell us about the process of that and why you decided to prioritise compositional sound over dialogical sound? Look, it's, it's very true. I've made one or two films that show human beings and have people talking or, or something, but it's it's kind of not my forte. You know, I I'm just not very good at it. Photographers are meant to be able to take a great portrait. I'm just kind of crap at that. I'm I'm anyway. Here is my brain. This is what it does and what it can't, what it can and can't do, and and therefore where I'm kind of directed to or driven to or what I find an interest in. I'm interested in rocks and clouds and, and environmental phenomena. And there you ha- there you have it. Um, and and the human is kind of present by their absence in in many ways. So that's that's one of the reasons why I do what I do in the way I do it. I, I'm, I'm drawn to certain things and, and, and not to others. And I guess, you know, you follow the, as any kind of artist, researcher, scholar, hopefully you follow what you're interested in um, rather than what you feel you might be obliged to do or what some expectation of, of you as a, as a certain kind of, you know, kind of being. I, 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 I'm not interested in, in exploring some kind of interiority of, 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 of the artist. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in rocks and rivers and mountains, and there you go. So anyway, I, I guess that kind of answers your question in a way. The other is simply that I think that combining image and sound is one of the greatest pleasures you can do, either as an artist or as an audience. I'm highly audiovisual as a, as, as a person, you know, I guess having been kind of bathed in that musical background, I always think in terms of music. And so being able to explore the unfolding of images in a musical way, in ways that reflect musical structure, in relation to music, in relation to the constant changes of, you know, timbre and tone and, and texture and density, you can play with these kind of aesthetic experiences or forms that I found enormously powerful and rich. It's deeply pleasurable for me and I figure that, you know, if I'm finding pleasure in this work and the way in which these images and sounds go together, then, you know, an, an audience will too. Some, someone will. You know, not everyone. It's not for everybody. The lack of human faces and voices, I'm sure, turns off a great many people. Um, so be it. That That's fine. I think it's it's a, it's a way into sensual experience that is very powerful because it touches people images and sounds in combination is a tangible and material experience for people look i'd have to agree i've watched the film myself a couple of times and for those of you that haven't watched it jump online and look it up the title of that again is the patterns of the past and the promise of tomorrow and i'd have to agree it 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 was so powerful to watch these images of, of our earth changing and, and growing and developing without the human influence, I think, of dialogue because the human influence was already inferred by the change of, of climate change and global warming. And I don't think I would have watched the film itself. I think I watched it five times over the weekend. I don't think I would have watched it had it not have had the music accompaniment with it because it did allow, I think, the viewer to be able to 
put their own emotion and their their own experience onto it without being necessarily forced to think or believe in a certain way that the film was supposed to be perceived. So I would agree 100% with you. I found it incredibly powerful, the music and then the art and and the images. It was it was a really beautiful combination, I think. Great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, D- Dougal's a genius. And um, Dougal McKinnon, he, my collaborator on this stuff, he, he's just really good at doing that job. You know, it, 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 a, a pat way of putting it is that it kind of keeps you watching. It does a whole, a whole lot more than that, right? But that's that's the the image and sound are kind of together are more than the sum of their parts in a way. And, and I think that's what you're responding to there. Mm. And it's also very ecological too. I think when you're out in nature, you, you, you're less likely to, um, or when you're observing things on the planet, you're less likely to hear people talking and you're more likely to hear sounds. And some of those sounds I think are quite melodic or uh, rhythmic, which I found the music to have both of those aspects to it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what was it like to have your film displayed at the United Nations Climate Change Conference? That's quite a massive feat to have your work displayed there. I mean, that's that's probably one of the biggest exhibitions an artist could have. Um, what was it like to have it there? Yeah, I was, I was pretty chuffed, um, to say the least. A real honour. It was an honour to, to, be, to be asked to do the work, to work with those kinds of materials and um, to have it shown in that context was, was really important. What was it like? You know, I, I found myself thinking about COP27 a lot while producing the work, you know, because it was a brief for a, a, a kind of a, you know, governmental diplomatic context in a way. COP27 is about climate policy, global climate policy that governments will agree to. And it's about education between governments and and you know non-governmental actors as to what they can do programs practices tools it's, it's about all of those things so while i was making it i i kept on thinking about who's the audience and and, and how are they experiencing this and what does the work do to them i kept imagining you know a some kind of environmental advisor for Emmanuel Macron standing there finding themselves in front of the work while uh, you know an attaché for the Botswana prime minister stands beside them and they, they they share a smile maybe they get moved at the same time they have a little chat about what's going on in their countries the work inspires them to come together you know I, I, I was just thinking about that kind of the the experience of it in that context and I, and I find that found that really fun I've never never um, thought about political advisors standing in front of my work before as the audience. I, that, that, that was a really interesting part of it. I've, I've no idea if any of these things happened. I imagine that they had a meet cute and then they went off for a drink at the bar afterwards. My, my, you know, it, my work fostered some kind of COP27 relationship. It, I'm sure it's entirely fiction, but that, that, was, that was my narrative while I was developing it. I'd like to imagine that too, bringing people together and then going for a drink afterwards and chatting about it, which also kind of talks a bit on my next question too of what did you hope was the takeaway from the film or what were you hoping to inspire from the film? Look, I guess because there's a couple of different audiences, general public, you know, I I think it's about wonder at phenomena and, and also insight into natural phenomena in some really challenging parts of the of the world you know when we see the enormous river systems in senegal and you see the enormity of kind of of agricultural work a- a- around them you we see these these fields toggling on and off i use infrared 
imaging to kind of track the 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 vegetation particularly and so you see this amazing patchwork of of of, of agriculture which shows us the complexity of life in challenging environments because I, I i time-lapsed a lot of those kinds of water systems in arid environments because that's where you get vulnerability and so we see the vulnerability of life the vulnerability of the environment the changeability of it but we also see life continuing through this as the seasons come and go as we reach arid parts of the year or drought we see life slow and we see it come back and so in a way the resilience and the patterning of environmental change over time was something I wanted people to see and you can do that with time lapse really nicely so that's I suppose in a way the general public takeaway the scientific takeaway you know it was commissioned I guess so that people gain a greater insight into the phenomena that satellite imaging can unfold and 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 the tools that they've developed that can be used by you know governments ngos what have you for environmental monitoring so it was kind of educative in a way but educative not through graphs and charts and 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 diagrams but through a creative visioning of the kinds of data sets that you can use to make charts and graphs and diagrams yeah and i think as well like having something i mean your work is dense you know like to to communicate graphs and data and science and geology and topography to everybody is a really hard job and i think the visceralness of the work the the imagery and the sound really does work i think to be able to reach a wider diverse audience which i really appreciate in your work is that it's digestible by uh, someone who has no experience or background in science such as myself yeah i found it incredibly digestible to be able to understand i think the world a little bit more and to be able to approach science without as much fear good good yeah yeah. so did you know sounds like you're a good test case did you feel that the work was in some way teaching you something about the world but it's not not kind of smacking you around the head with it it's not educative in a formal sense but it did it did it give you some insight into those kinds of phenomena yeah yeah it did I, I've never I've never in my time watched satellite imagery time lapsing and um, the way that you put it together because I think I have a very abstract mind so I find it very hard to sit down and read a book um, that's dense with that information it goes right over my head yeah watching that film and watching it over and over again for me too each time I got a different read on it but definitely that first time that that I watched it it, it, it was a very visceral experience of watching waterways ebb and flow and decrease and in some moments as well completely vanish and I think that for me created quite an emotive response which I think is really important when trying to educate people with science is to invoke that emotion because that's what connects people with the importance of science and the importance of this information of global warming and climate change which I think you did yeah fantastically you nailed it on the head with that film awesome awesome good 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 so speaking of films you also created another fantastic film based on clouds called path 99 and it was part of the Australian Cloud Atlas, I believe, um, which launched as part of the digital arts program at the Loom in Melbourne. Can you tell me about your involvement in the project and what it's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Path 99 
um, there's a planetarium film that I worked on for a few years and Dougal and I worked together. He did an amazing soundtrack and yeah, Path 99 launched in the New Zealand International Film Festival in the Wellington Planetarium, what, at the end of 2021. And yeah, it, it's, it, it's cloud data. So, and, and, and so maybe I'll, there is a bit of backstory in this one. Geoscientists use Earth observation satellites like um, Landsat to track environmental change. But because, you know, over 60% of the Earth's surface is covered by clouds at any one time, a great deal of what um, geoscientists end up having to do is get clouds out of their data. Clouds are just noise. They're not tracking meteorological phenomena. They're tracking the ground. And so they have these algorithms that filter clouds out of the um, data pixel by pixel. They use the, and do, do a kind of comparative analysis of different bands of the electromagnetic spectrum to work out the likelihood of whether a given pixel is cloud or cloud shadow or ice or just the normal clear picture of the ground. And um, everything that's cloudy, they deem invalid data and their algorithms put it out into the invalid data basket. And early on in my work with Geoscience Australia, I was chatting with, a, with one of the scientists and, and we were working on a little, on, a, on an application, and she talked about the invalid data. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? What, what hold, hold, hold on there. Say that again. And she said, oh, well, the invalid data, you know, that, that's what we're getting rid of. And so I said, well, how do we keep all the invalid data? She's like, I don't know. And so, you know, that was like a kind of red rag to a bull moment. Tell an artist that there's a vast database of invalid data somewhere and they're going to want to play with it. So I just did what any artist would do really in that instance. And so we worked out how to, how to bring all the invalid data back, how to show just invalid data and also what it might look like. Because the irony is that at the same time that the Digital Earth Australia platform shows us 40 years of the Australian continent, it also shows us 40 years of Australia's cloud systems. And it was that realization that I had at my fingertips an enormous database of clouds across the continent that I, that, that's where Path 99 came from because I realized I could use that database of kind of scientific waste data to explore meteorological phenomena, to explore clouds, which are nevertheless, you know, absolutely central to climate on the planet. Clouds distribute rain. Clouds reflect sunlight and cool the earth. And clouds are affected by climate change, by a warming climate. And, and, and as I discovered, once I'd got this a bit of an obsession, meteorologists are really intensely studying what clouds do under climate change because there's a question as to whether clouds and feedback loops will kind of amplify the warming effect that we're getting through carbon dioxide or whether the clouds will kind of dampen it depending on whether different clouds at different altitudes increase or decrease and that that affects really the you know the the, the they're, they're calling a warming effect so the future of clouds under a warming climate climate is um is complex and intensely studied so i wanted to do a project that not only used this invalid data this, this enormous cloud database, but that allowed us to reflect on clouds both as contributors to climate and as these beautiful, constantly evolving, enormous systems that kind of creatively spread across our planet constantly. So, and a planetarium seemed like a great space to do that, to kind of look up at enormous cloud systems being looked at from above. 
you have this weird kind of perspectival flipping in the planetarium where you lie back and stare up at what's normally you know the hemisphere of the sky but when you use satellite imaging you're looking up at, a, at an enormous robotic eye looking down at you so so that that was the project and Dougal and I conceived it for this planetarium in Wellington and um yeah basically I, I did seven years of satellite data down this orbit of the of the Landsat 8 satellite called Path 99. Path 99 is one single stripe um, that crosses the continent from north to south from like the Gulf of Carpentaria and Oricoon right down to um, South Australia and the Eyre Peninsula. And so I just cho chose a bunch of sites down that path to time-lapse over seven years and explore the clouds down those sites. So, so you see that enormous variety and difference between the tropical areas where you've got almost constant thunderstorms and then you go to the desert areas and the salt lakes and the dune systems and you just see the true deep aridity of, of the continent yeah where there's barely any environmental change and there's barely any clouds yeah and so and and with this film too so i understand that you use a lot of infrared imagery for it which has an incredible effect as well to be able to see clouds through an infrared lens is um quite mind-blowing i think would you be able to tell us about infrared technology and its significance to your art practice and in particular this project why you chose to use infrared imagery um, to be able to communicate it yeah yeah sure so so I, I reckon I got my understanding of infrared from starting to work with satellite data I'd, I'd known that you know photographers do it sometimes as well and, I, and I've taken on that practice um, but yeah mainly I came to it through multispectral imaging the 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 electromagnetic spectrum has has a vast variance in 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 wavelength and only some of which we treat as light and can see but a vast you know amounts of the of the electromagnetic spectrum which is basically energy in in, in many instances solar energy um whole 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 screeds of this stuff we can't see but they nevertheless have effects really short wavelengths the uv end of the spectrum these are the ones that are so small that they penetrate our body and they, they, they you know they cause cancers they have effects on us at the other end of the visible light spectrum we get into infrared where we can't see it but it's highly reflected by things like vegetation the chlorophyll in vegetation reflects um, infrared light very strongly and so scientists figure out that if they have these camera sensors that can pick up a much wider range of energy, of reflected energy or emitted energy than just pure visible light, then they can see all these env environmental phenomena that are invisible to the human eye but are really important. And so once I'd started working with that in satellite imagery, I, you know, I, I, I made sure I, I, I converted one of my cameras so that it sees infrared, you take the, there's, there's a filter on every camera sensor that is basically designed to filter out UV and infrared light because it produces, you know, noise. It distorts the colors, essentially. Um, if you remove that filter, you get what's called a full spectrum camera, which enables you to then, say, use another filter and just see the infrared light coming off objects. Or you can get a filter which... I don't know, maybe it stops at 650 nanometers and you can see some of the red, maybe a tiny bit of the blue and then all the infrared. But everything kind of um, shorter than that is cut off. 
So you get to make these selective kind of false color renderings of the world where you can map different um, infrared frequencies to red, green, or blue. And so you get these surreal shifts in how the world's perceived, but you're also essentially perceiving, often you're, you're perceiving the health of vegetation um, in the strength of the infrared. And so I, I, I use experimental combinations of infrared bands and I map them to red, green, and blue in ways that most scientists don't really do because it produces crazy color combinations, particularly with clouds. I quickly discovered that using near infrared and the two shortwave infrared bands mapped to RGB gives you these crazy surreal clouds. The ground is turquoise, water is black, and clouds are these pink, crimson, purple, orange fantasias. And so building a work around, you know, fan, cloud, cloud fantasia seemed like a good thing to do. It was very psychedelic. It's something that as well, when I watched it, I imagined it to definitely belong in a museum and in an art gallery, but also imagined it projected onto a wall at a big 1970s party. You know, it was it definitely had that Austin Powers feel to it too, almost. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's trippy as all hell. There's no question. So how do you see art and science being merged in the future? And what benefits will this bring of merging those two together? Yeah, yeah, good question. You know, art and science have a both kind of huge commonality and fundamental kind of instrumental or operational differences. You know, I think that artists and scientists naturally speak a kind of natural language. They explore phenomena, you know, an artist, you, ha you have to know how, how, how your materials work and how your tools work and, and, and how you can explore different, different materialities and forms through natural phenomena. So much art is based on physics and chemistry, for example. So I think artists are natural scientists in a way and they, they experiment and they, they hypothesize and they explore and they engage in open-ended, emergent processes, just as scientists often have to do. But of course, scientists do this to solve a specific problem that may be funded by or a priority of a government or an NGO or some other funding body for real commercial interest or to deal with you know massive environmental problems so there's a really there's a real hard edge in instrumental edge to to science that art will never really be able to approach you know our, our objectives are different in that sense we engage audiences for different reasons even if we're engaging them around similar materials but working together i think produces both i find more engaging, rich, complex art and science that's been nuanced by the capacity to, you know, think and feel and experience and not purely to kind of cognize, you know. So once we move science from being purely instrumental and accept that people should um, have an emotional engagement with the phenomena that science studies, and that that's not a bad thing, that's what art brings. And so that that's certainly what I seek to do in my work and what I'd like to see in the future. I'd like to see artists more regularly brought into the science lab so that the kinds of questions that are asked are asked both for their emotional and aesthetic kind of 
valence or resonance as for their practical material use and you know empirical truth or what have you Mm. and so what's next for you what what projects are you currently working on or are you hoping to working to be working on in the future Look, yeah, there's a bunch of creative projects. Um, I, I feel I've only just scratched the surface with the Digital Earth Africa work. Um, I'm really keen to expand it and do more. And I've got a, various conferences and exhibitions lined up for this year. I've been all going well, lined up to be an artist in residence at this immersive motion capture lab at Flinders University. Um, they're interested in having me there for a few months this year to do do some work. So, And I've never really worked with motion capture so I'm going to do something there. And yeah, look, there's just stuff in the Flinders Ranges where my house is that I want to do, work with friends friends there. Um, the Flinders is very beautiful, powerful country that speaks to me in a way that I can't even fathom. And, and I've been working with 3D scanning and photogrammetry and drones there to kind of bit by bit come to grips with the country a little bit. So there's, there's plenty of that to be done as well. Wow. Well, Grayson, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for talking about your incredible work and sharing your incredible knowledge with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Trevor. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 